0: This week, Congress is hard at work on spending bills for 2024. It's the last work week before the August recess as the fiscal year rushes towards September 30th. Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan joins me with a look ahead. And just because they're cranking out these bills doesn't mean they're going to agree on everything and that we won't avoid the CR. But tell us what is going on this final week before a big recess.
1: Well, both chambers have been working pretty diligently on the spending bills, at least at the committee level in recent weeks, where as of last Friday, we had 10 of the 12 through the House Committee and 8 of the 12 through the Senate Committee. The big thing, though, is the way those two bills or two sets of bills are being written are very different, with the House coming in under the non-defense spending cap that they agree to as part of the debt limit, and the Senate adhering to those caps and also saying, we're going to tack on about another $13 billion or something like that in emergency funds beyond what we agree to in the caps. Both those dynamics were forecasted even as they were signing that debt limit deal into law, but it's it's a dynamic that's going to persist. You're going to have two very different sets of bills, and you're going to have to meet in the middle at some point, both on spending and then on all the riders and other provisions that a Republican House and a Democratic Senate might not necessarily see eye to eye on.
0: Yeah. So that reconciliation is the thing or the lack of it. It's like one group is writing its bills in Farsi and the other is writing it in Hebrew. And somehow they have to mash this together and so that's what's going to take the time when they, and when do they return? Uh, they're out for most of August, right?
1: They are out for most of August. We'll come back in September with a, you know, a few weeks to spare before September 30th and some sort of progress on spending. Um, September 30th, especially given the dynamic we're seeing here, we're most likely to see a continuing resolution before October 1st, start of the fiscal year, but you know they're trying to make progress, as you noted, with two floor votes next week on a couple of the spending bills in the House, trying to get these things moving. Um, some Senate have said they'd like to see the Senate take up some of these bills when they get back in September as well. So start moving the bills, start getting the process going. Um, but there's a long way to go before we get to any sort of way for an agency to plan what its funding is going to be for the next fiscal year.
0: Yeah. So just to reiterate, basically, the Senate is going with 2024 figures that were agreed to in the debt ceiling right. deal. With limits. And the House is saying, yeah, that was great, but let's do 2022 levels instead.
1: Right. On the non-defense side. On defense side, both chambers are heading towards the same goal. But on the non-defense side, that's where the cuts are coming in. And the bills that the House has been producing out of committee have some pretty significant cuts to them. And in some cases, they're offsetting it by cutting funding from elsewhere, for example, from last year's reconciliation law, taking money away from the IRS that it was given in that law. So they're trying to get those numbers down however they can, both lower programmatic levels and offsetting by cutting funding elsewhere.
0: Right. And on the DOD side, where there's some budget unanimity, the problem is the NDAA, which the Senate is going to finish, and there there's some big philosophical differences with the NDAA that the House passed, correct? Correct.
1: very very big differences. Um, This is a piece of legislation that they try to make as bipartisan as possible, and on the Senate side, it was bipartisan coming out of committee, and so far a pretty bipartisan process where they're setting up and knocking out some amendments here and there. They did a few last week. They're going to try and do more this week. On the House side, when they passed their bill, it was very much a partisan bill with, you know, kind of a two, I think it was maybe 219 to 210, pretty party-line vote with a couple of crosses here and there, and that's because of the adoption of amendments around uh, abortion Issues, DEI issues, um, transgender affirming care issues, things that were added to the bill to try to win the support of some of the harder line conservatives in the House. But now you have a bill that Democrats walked away from, where you know Adam Smith, who's the ranking member on the House Armed Services Committee, said, "I liked this bill out of committee. We were all ready to stand by it, but we have to withdraw our support." So you're going to have to meet somewhere in the middle between those two bills to get the NDAA through, even if those top line numbers, which are very important, line up. It's all the details in that twelfth, you know, easily 1,200, 1,500-page 1, bill by the time they're done with it, um, they're going to have to reconcile all those along the way.
0: Oh, not like they have a heavy lift or anything ahead of them. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director for Bloomberg Government, and there is some fun stuff happening when they do return. UFOs seem to be hovering over the Congress the last few months, and what are they going to do about them
1: Well, there's a hearing this week featuring um, somebody who's kind of described as a whistleblower who's worked on the unidentified autonomous phenomena is what they're referred to UAPs rather than UFOs now. But he's going to go before a subcommittee where the chairman has said that Washington bureaucrats aren't telling us the truth about what's going on with this. And we're going to try to get to the bottom of it in a hearing like this, where they're going to hear from folks who have researched these incidents and say they've heard from officials what may have gone on. So it's, I I think it's going to be a very interesting hearing. Um, there have been fairly serious hearings in recent years over these UAP and hearing from pilots and people in the military about what they've encountered. And so this is the latest of this and the Republican House subcommittee really focusing in on this issue. So we are going to watch this one because I think we could learn something very interesting and, and see what they have to say.
0: Presuming nobody really thinks Area 51 has aliens in jars of formaldehyde and this kind of thing. People are Concern that it might be some technology from an opposing nation like China that we just can't figure out how they can make a plane go sideways or something.
1: Right. I mean, any sort of disadvantage that we would have in in the military sphere because somebody has better technology than us is something that I think is right for the military to to research and write for Congress to kind of plumb that issue. And that's where they are right now with it. Um, I'm not sure if we'll see direct legislation out of anything that's talked about here, but I think people instantly gravitate towards that Area 51 or, you know, scenes from Independence Day where there's, you know, an alien craft somewhere in in the desert. But I I do think that that could be some of the questions. Do we have anything like that? I wouldn't be shocked if somebody asked that point blank during the hearing.
0: Yeah, well, my Understanding this dates back to the day the Earth stood still, but you can look that one up in the movie database. And finally, uh, Secretary Mayorkas of Homeland Security, not off the hook at all yet in the House, is he?
1: No, the House talked last week about some of the groundwork they've started laying for a possible impeachment, and he is going to go into the House Judiciary Committee this week for probably another tough grilling. He's had several over the course of the last year um, as the department, um, you know, deals with the various issues it must confront, including what's going on at the border, fentanyl, and and many of the other management issues that Republicans have pressed. I'm sure he'll be talking about some of the immigration numbers that show maybe declines of crossing at the border, and, and will be presenting his best case as well. Um, But it does seem like he is very much still under the gun. There are still going to be calls for his resignation and possible impeachment at some point. Um, So again, every time he's up there, we're trying to see what they're asking and what they're saying about the department.
0: Well, maybe he could bring Robert F. Kennedy Jr. with him. And so that would kind of balance things out on both sides of the aisle there facing him. Lauren Duggan is deputy news director of Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members, raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work work.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you.
3: It's a pleasure. It's mine.
2: You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Aniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How has your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader?
3: The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground. Because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people. Because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility, both as a union leader and as a pastor, to ensure that people have a liberal wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair, with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry as I've grown through the four decades of leading people.
2: Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage
3: it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot. And please understand, when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done.
2: As CEO at at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style?
3: You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders gets me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause, and, and and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain.
2: I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. (laughs) Um, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader.
3: You know, understanding that I was born in the deep south. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I, I gotta quit saying this, but but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God, and that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in, uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people, right? Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's It is needed. Uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice
2: that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of Different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes, and it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career?
3: You know, I don't know you asking for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah, if that's okay. Yes. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer. Right. Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it right? And the, in the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough.
2: And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today?
3: It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when, and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith,